Welcome to the podcast for a better life. I'm Chris Johnson. If you're interested, both the book and film version of A Better Life are available at theatheistbook.com. On today's episode, I speak to Indre Viscontis about the power of music. Indre Viscontis is a neuroscientist and opera singer. She is a professor of sciences and humanities at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music and the creative director of the Pasadena Opera. She was featured in the book version of A Better Life. She has recently written a new book called How Music Can Make You Better. I asked her about her upbringing and how she gained her love of music and science. I was born in Canada and my parents were um, refugees from Lithuania. So they raised me in an environment where we only spoke Lithuanian (laughs) and uh, we only associated with other Lithuanians for the most part. And I did all kinds of like Lithuanian traditional things. Um, like folk dancing and scouting and going to Lithuanian school on Saturday mornings. Um, So that was a big part of my childhood. And um, then I, you know, I started elementary school and went through all of that in Canada. I went actually through French immersion. So, uh, you know, I like to joke that English is my third language, even though right now it's like my best language. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I was that kid that like just looked dumbfounded in first grade. Like, I don't understand anything that's going on. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, But yeah, so then I, I, you know, I was stayed in Toronto for my undergraduate degree um, because I thought the University of Toronto was a really great school and I um, wanted to go there to study psychology. Uh And while I was there, I, you know, I had ever since I was a little kid had done a lot of singing and um I, you know, it was something that I never thought that I could make a career out of because that seemed really magical. And I didn't I didn't know how people made money from doing music. It, it was mysterious to me. So I decided that I wanted to do, do a degree in psychology because that made more sense. And then I would keep singing. And by the time I finished my undergraduate degree, I had learned a lot more about how to become a professional musician and and what you need to do. And I felt like I wanted to give that a shot. So I moved to London because it was my favorite city in the world at the time. And uh, I decided that I would just do whatever I could to be a singer. So I took lessons and I worked six nights a week at the Royal Opera House as an usher. (laughs) And I essentially had this immersive experience and realized like it's really hard to be a professional musician in a city that's as as expensive as London. when you have no music degree. It's hard to do anything in a city as expensive as London. It is. Yeah. <laughs> it is. And it's particularly hard if you want to do something artistic. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, which even in the best, uh, the cheapest cities is still hard to do. So then I, I had actually deferred a um, acceptance to UCLA in their cognitive neuroscience PhD program. And I decided that that was actually a good idea because I felt like, well, I, you know, I've done the undergraduate thing and I actually found undergrad a lot easier than high school in a lot of ways because I felt like I had a lot more free time so I could do the things that I, I wanted to do. And so I thought, well, if, if the PhD is like that, that sounds like a good thing to do. <laughs> So that was my second mistake, Um, thinking that a PhD is just like undergrad. Uh, uh, So anyway, I got to L.A. and I uh, found a singing teacher and I kept doing that. But I also obviously had to do a PhD and it was a lot more work than I expected, but also a lot more exciting. So that, you know, fast forward a few years when I finished my PhD, I was like, okay, now now I really want to just be a singer. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, uh, and by that time I had been fortunate enough to uh, have my PhD essentially paid for by various scholarships. And so I'd actually socked away a bit of money and I could afford to go to music school. So I did my master's in voice performance um, at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. And while I was there, uh, I realized there was a really big problem in music education. And that is that a lot of the stuff that we know about how the brain learns and remembers had not trickled down to how we train musicians, in particular singers. And I felt like I could actually bridge that gap and it would be a way that I could bring these two distinct parts of my life together for the first time um, and also kind of you know, do something innovative and unique. Uh, so I started thinking about that. And in the meantime, I, d I decided that I, you know, since I had this music degree now, I really should try to make all of my income from artistic endeavors. So I signed up with an agent and I basically just took anything, any jobs that came my way that required an audition. <laughs> One of those jobs happened to be for a television show on the Oprah Winfrey Network called Miracle Detectives. And I think that's probably how we met the first time is uh, the at the tail end of that show, because uh, that show was also a really formative time in my life. Um, it introduced me to this whole world of people who are skeptical. Uh, and it also made me face my own religious beliefs and analyze them in a way that I'd never had before. Uh, and it also showed me that there are a lot of very angry people out there because I got a lot of hate mail from people who, uh, you know, called themselves Christian. And I found that very jarring, uh, that there, that there was this kind of disconnect between what I always thought of as a kind of moral, ethical, spiritual, um, distinction. And that these individuals who were, were, were sort of calling me out for being unethical and non-spiritual and in doing so were being very immoral themselves. <laughs> so just to, just to back up a little bit, were you, you were raised religiously and then you kind of left it later on or how, what was that what was that like yeah yeah so as part of the Lithuanian community uh the big pillar of the community was the catholic church and uh that was the center where that was where you know all of our events happened that was my mother was the and still is the uh choir director at the church um so you know my a lot of a lot of days of my of my week were spent at the church or near the church or around the church and um you know that was just that's just how i was raised and what i knew and it really wasn't until i started going on the miracle detectives show that i had to really kind of deep, think deeply about my beliefs and even by then you know i didn't really believe in the concept of god as this you know bearded man in the sky wearing long flowing robes um in fact uh uh, one of my so I went through my high school was a Catholic girls high school and while I was there I remember very distinctly I had this one religion teacher believe it or not uh, Mr. McKeever and I remember Mr. McKeever basically telling us straight out there's no such thing as heaven and hell and wow <laughs> my whole world was turned upside down I was like wait what <laughs> does he still have a job there or? <laughs> uh no <laughs> yeah. he has since left Lorna Abbey uh <laughs> not surprising um uh, well, yeah, I, mean, I don't know if that was why, but uh, he was he's certainly a great teacher. But he but uh, he was right, you know, in the sense that like the way that we think about it, it was very kind of black and white and not very um, nuanced. And that in a lot of ways, it's not aligned with uh, some of the more kind of intellectual scholarly ways, interpretations of, of you in the Bible. So so anyway, so that kind of started opening my eyes. But um, it also kind of made me shift in thinking like, well, wait a minute, but that's why I do all these things that may, you know, that I think are good. It's because I'm going to go to heaven. And if I don't, I'm going to go to hell. So like, you know, 
why don't why why am I not just like doing like shoplifting or like you know doing things that are are uh, morally reprehensible if there's no such thing as hell mm-hmm. and I can get away with it. You, you mentioned that um, you kind of first had to th- really think about these questions when you were doing the show on the Oprah Winfrey Network. Um, was that a, a difficult time for you, kind of confronting those? the religious upbringing that you had gone through or was it more of an easy kind of like, Oh, this doesn't, this isn't real. So I'll just brush it aside. Um, it was difficult, but it was also, ob- it got more and more obvious to me. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the more I thought about it, the more it didn't make sense to me to believe in an omniscient, ever loving, uh, you know, good master of the universe that would let people suffer. <laughs> You know, it just kind of like made me think about this kind of like, well, wait, wait a minute. Like there are children who are dying of starvation in Africa. And I don't buy this idea that they are put on this earth in order to, you know, have some kind of purpose. It just seemed, you know, I just started sort of was faced with the arbitrariness of suffering. And it just didn't I couldn't rationalize it with the conception that I had of a. Um, you know, a kind of destiny or, or, a, or a part of the universe where, you know, things were predetermined and, and everything was going to turn out okay. Um, and so I think that it, it, it was, it's hard. It's, I think it's always hard to kind of lose something that previously kind of gave you hope and kind of what, what I thought was my moral compass. But it also showed me that my moral compass was not beholden to these ideas and that, um, that that there that, that it, it is you can act morally without worrying about sort of the eternal punishment that might <laughs> uh, befall you if you don't act morally, and that in fact in some ways that's even an even more human way of being. So ultimately, it was um, you know very sort of satisfying and encouraging, and I felt like it was a, a journey that I was proud to have gone on. Um, but yes, in the moment, there were definitely moments where it was hard. How did your parents handle that? Um, well, uh, you know, kind of mixed. You know, I, I've had, I think even to this day, it's still sometimes hard for my mom to accept it. Like, like if she Googles me, there's like, actually, it's our video that comes up oh. <laughs> when you're the top. Apologies to your mother. And uh, yeah, so it was just like, like, like uh, a Christmas or two ago where she, fu- she first watched it and she got very angry with me and she was very upset and... Uh, you know, in many ways, it felt like it embarrassed her in front of her friends and colleagues. And I felt very badly about that. Um, But I didn't feel apologetic. And I didn't regret, you know, things that I said, you know, I I can empathize with with her and how um, this might make her feel in front of her peers. But I also feel like that it's, you know, it's it's who I am, it's what I believe, and there's nothing wrong with what I believe. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I don't see it as a reflection of my, uh, you know, being a bad person because I've sort of taken this route, even though there is a lot of stigma associated with being an atheist. It's interesting you brought up your mom and and her reaction to this because um, you mentioned that she was part of the choir. Um, Is that where you got your love of music as well was through your parents? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she 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 had me, she put me in choirs from the time I was really little, you know, music was always a a very important part of our household. 
Um, you know, the the book that I just wrote is dedicated to her because she's the one who showed me that, you know, music makes things better. <laughs> and uh, and so, uh, you know, I'm very and, and I love my mom. We have a great relationship. Don't get me wrong. Um, but, you know, I think that that's def- definitely where it, it comes from. And, and actually a lot of it's interesting when I look back upon my life, like when I was a kid, I really thought of myself as very spiritual. You know, I had a lot of feelings and I felt like I had a really deep relationship with God. And, uh, you know, um, it's my own, like, I, I you reread some of my like journal entries of when I was a child and it's like, wow, you actually thought you were the second coming. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I'm not, um, in case I knew there's, there's any doubt there, but, um, but I think that part of what I was expressing in terms of my, my real love for this, uh, idea was related to my love for music. And, and I was trying to express how I felt about music uh, and I and and religion was kind of a, a proxy for that in a lot of ways because everything I loved about religion had to do with music, <laughs> right? Like I didn't really particularly like the prayers, I didn't really like the rituals, I didn't, you know. But I loved the music, and I loved the fact that uh, this was something that you know a, a way of kind of I can see why people feel that it brings them closer to God because you know it does kind of open up this whole other dimension um, of connectedness amongst human beings and amongst human beings and and nature and the world and all that kind of stuff. And so that was what was exciting to me about it. Do you still feel an emotional connection to religious music? Uh, less and less. I mean, I, you know, I, I have a, uh, a kind of a nostalgic um, connection to music. So, for example, over the Christmas holidays when, uh, you know, we are bombarded with Christmas music, I de- it's definitely easy for me to tear up, <laughs> you know, when I either sing or hear uh, pieces that, that were meaningful to me and remain meaningful to me, like A Holy Night, for example. It's hard for me to sing A Holy Night without breaking down into tears, um, whereas that's not true for a lot of my secular pieces, even though I love them very much. Um, so I think there's like a, a connection there. Um, but I, you know, since then, sort of most of the music now I listen to or that I perform is secular. So I, I can't say that it plays a, a huge role in my life. And, and also I used to um, have a church job. So I was a soprano soloist at um, Mission Dolores Church in San Francisco for a number of years. And I no longer um, have time to do that. And so I feel like it's it's less of a part of my life. Um, so, I, so, yeah, I, say, I would say currently uh, religious music plays a pretty small role in my life. And many people claim that they can't sing, but uh, one of the things you've mentioned in this book uh, is you argue that's not really true, that very few people are actually tone deaf, and that through practice, anyone can sing. Is that true? And can you talk more about that? Yeah, sure. So um, it's actually one of the reasons I wrote this book, is that people would often come up to me and they would say, oh, you know, I love Adele, but uh, I don't know if she has a good voice. (laughs) And I'd be like, but you love her. So of course she has a good voice. By definition, she has a good voice if you know she moves you and because you like it. Um, it but we have this kind of notion that you have to sing a certain way to be quote unquote good. Uh, and I think that that's really problematic because we don't say you have to speak a certain way to be good unless like, you know, you're in some part of the world where a person's speech patterns, uh, you know, are, are reflective of their socioeconomic status, like a caste system or something like that. Right. Um, you know, the Queen's English. But uh, but for the most part, we don't sort of evaluate each other's voices in terms of how we speak. So um, we evaluate what you say <laughs> and how you say it. Not, you know, the pitch or the timbre of your actual voice, although there are some voices that are, you know, more pleasant than others. And I think that that's true for singing, too. You know, it doesn't have to be 
this um, lofty, operatic, pure sound. Um, because even within the world of opera, there's a lot of debate about what makes a perfect sound. Uh, and so I think there's, you know, music is, is very, very subjective um, because it's about expressing sort of the, the intimacies of, of, of the human being. So, uh, you know, there isn't a kind of bar that distinguishes a good singer from a bad singer. So if that's if that's where you're coming from, then what does it mean to sing and whether you can or you can't sing? Uh, so then it comes down to, you know, holding a tune or distinguishing sounds uh, on the basis of what they sound like. And if you can tell the difference between, you know, your mother and your girlfriend on the phone, <laughs> then you're not tone deaf uh, because, you know, the differences there are going to be primarily in terms of the tone. There are people who are uh, have amusia. It's, it's usually a congenital condition, so it runs in families, um, usually born with it. And they're very rare. I mean, if you have amusia, like, please go and sign up with, uh, you know, researchers in a music cognition lab because it's, they're really hard to find. Um, most people think they're tone deaf because they can't produce the sound with their voice that they hear in their head. And that's simply a matter of practice. In fact, we can look at the brain regions that are involved in creating that ability and we see them increase in size. Like, for example, the, there's, a, there's a tract of white matter of, of connections between neurons um, on the right side of your brain called the arcuate fasciculus. It's kind of an awesome name. Uh, and it basically connects the part of your brain where you understand or comprehend hand speech and the part of the brain where you produce speech. So in a way, you can think about it as, you know, the white matter tract that takes what you hear in your head and helps you um, use your voice to create that sound. And in singers, that tract becomes better developed. It becomes bigger physically uh, with training. So if you're not trained and that and by that, I just mean you just haven't done it in a kind of deliberate way with the appropriate feedback and correction and, and all of that, then, you know, you haven't developed that particular ability, but that doesn't mean that you, it's not, you don't have the potential to do so, <laughs> right? It's like saying, you know, people don't usually say like, um, I just can't play basketball no matter what. Like, they'll just be like, well, I just haven't practiced enough basketball to be any good. <laughs> and yet, for some reason, we think of singing as this kind of, you know, God-given innate talent. Um, and any singer who has ever lived, I think, will attest that they've worked on crafting their instrument. Um, it doesn't just come, quote unquote, naturally. And uh, and that's something that I think people just don't realize. Like if you spent as much time as, you know, I have or anyone else has on sort of developing your voice, like I'm sure that you would be just as good, if not better than me, because <laughs> I'm certainly no prodigy. Uh, you look at, you know, you hear videos of me singing when I was a kid and like I did could not hold a tune <laughs> and, you know, it's just not very good. Um, but, you know, I, I kept at it. And I think that that's one thing that people don't realize is that there are ways in which you can train your voice and you can train yourself to sing. And so, yeah, you know, I think anybody can sing. I mean, if Louis Armstrong can sing with that gravelly voice and we can, you know, call it really good, uh, then anybody can sing. There are some physiological reasons as to why some people are are better at singing than others uh, innately. Well, I mean, I mean, by that you could argue, okay, like, like, okay, so there are, you know, the, the, the way that you sing in an unamplified way involves using the um, structures in your face, right? So like how big your bones are, how big your eye sockets are, you know, all of that is going to affect the sound ultimately that you produce. Um, but that doesn't mean that you're going to be a better singer, 
right? Again, I think that we, we sort of conflate this tone that we are able to produce with the ability to sing. And I don't think that those two things are the same thing. I mean, I mean, there's lots of popular singers who really just, they don't make great sound, <laughs> um, you know? And, uh, and even Maria Callas, who is arguably the greatest opera singer that ever lived, uh, her technique was pretty flawed. And uh, she was not a great singer compared with some of the other singers of her day, but she was a great singer, <laughs> you know, because what she could do is express emotion in a way that felt very authentic and real and um, vulnerable. And so I don't think that that's something that, uh, you know, your physiology will limit you from doing. I think that's something that your um, psychology will limit you from doing and, 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 you know, if, and, and your ability to kind of practice it. So, so I don't, I don't buy this idea that there's a physiology that's limiting. I think it's about, you know, in some ways it's your, your imagination and your, your artistic expression, uh, that is going to limit you, you know, your inhibitions, your, um, inability to just, you know, let it go <laughs> as they say on frozen. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I think I think that that's kind of yeah, I, I think that that's a bigger obstacle than anything physical. You know, you write in the book that you say, quote, music isn't music until our minds make it so sound can be noise in one context, but music in another. Can you explain that? What makes music music? Yeah, I mean, it's such a such a cool uh, thing to contemplate. So, and, and the answer I give usually is like, okay, like let's, let's take a piece of music. Like what's your favorite piece of music? Do you have a piece of favorite piece of, piece of music? Oh, I, I don't have one off the top of my head. My favorite piece. I don't have a favorite. I know. Right. It's, it's a hard question, but let's take a piece of music that we think is good. Um, okay. Like Adele's hello. Do you think that's good? Can we all agree? That's a good song. It is. It's a good song. Maybe. Okay. Yes. So is it the fact that she says hello on those two notes hello. that makes it music? Is it the note? Like, can I just say, okay, A flat, that, that's music. It's not, right? The note itself is not music. Um, is it the silence between the notes that's music? Well, no, that, that doesn't make any sense either. What it is is the connections between the notes and how our brains interpret it. And, and when I say that music isn't music until essentially your brain makes it so, I use that wonderful um, illusion that Diana Deutsch, who's a music cognition pioneer uh, at UCSD, discovered where, you know, your listeners might have, might have heard this, but she says something like, the sounds as they appear to you are not really as they are blah, 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 but they sometimes behave so strangely as to seem quite impossible. She has this like sentence that, that she says. Mm. And, and, and when you listen to the illusion, what she does is she repeats that they sometimes behave so strangely a number of times until it sounds like she's singing it. So then you replay the entire sentence from, from the beginning to end and the sound wave has not changed. Uh, what has changed is your brain. Because all of a sudden it sounds as if when she gets to, they sometimes behave so strangely, it sounds like she breaks into song. It sounds like she's suddenly singing it, that it's music. And the only thing that distinguishes that part of the sentence from the rest of the sentence is the fact that you've listened to it repeatedly. Um, so essentially your brain has decided, okay, well, this... this um, you know, stimulus is being repeated, this pattern is being repeated. So maybe there's something more interesting to this pattern than just the superficial or even the, the kind of meaning behind the words. Maybe I need to listen to it in a different way. And so your brain listens to it in a different way and turns it into music. Um, and forevermore, that illusion sticks with you when you listen to that entire phrase again. So it's like almost a permanent switch in your brain. So another example is, uh, 
you know, John Cage's famous piece, Four Minutes and 33 Seconds, which, you know, essentially is just a series of uh, musicians who sit on stage and they don't play their instruments for four minutes and 33 seconds. And the music is in all the kind of shuffling and interesting sounds that are produced as a result. But essentially, you know, John Cage has created music out of silence, out of the absence of sound. Um, and it's only musical in the concert hall. Like if you did that anywhere else, it's people are just be like, that's not music. <laughs> um, but because it's in the concert hall, you know, because it's in this context, it, it becomes music. And that's and that's entirely to do with how your brain interprets uh, that particular signal. So I think, you know, anyone who's sort of like had, um, you know, an earworm stuck in their ear or, you know, played these kinds of word games where they repeat a word over and over and over again until it no longer has meaning has essentially kind of toyed with this notion that, you know, you're you can take a sound wave and you can turn it into music um, by sort of how your brain interprets the sound. But you know, if, if you're not, it's not in the wave itself, right? It's not in the notes. It's not in the signs between the notes. It's not in that stimulus. It's in how you listen to that stimulus. So by the same token, you know, um, sound waves are just rarefactions and compressions of air, uh, and our ears turn it into, uh, these membrane potential changes or electrical signals. And then our brain, uh, interprets it. And if there is nobody in the forest to create that interpretation to to perceive those rarefactions and compressions of air as sound then the tree falling does not make a sound <laughs> so that's the correct answer to that question it's good to know that finally has an answer <laughs> i was actually born uh three months premature um back in 1982 and i listened to mozart for the first three months of my life in an incubator uh, hmm. Do you think that had an impact on me? And does music early on have an effect on child development? Yeah, so we do actually see some really interesting results, especially from kids in the NICU. And uh, do you know what Mozart piece was played? Was it just like, you know, the Mozart kind of station? Or was there a particular piece? And, and, and was it just a recording that was played? I don't know. I, I think it was a recording. Yeah, I mean, that would make a lot of sense. So what we actually see is that in the presence of that kind of music, particularly of music like Mozart's, uh, where you have it's it's you have these um, patterns that repeat in a pretty predictable way, mm -hmm. but uh, there's enough complexity where your brain doesn't get bored by it. Um, and also there's this kind of... Um, calmness to it it's not a jarring sound uh you know it, it does have physiological reactions in 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 our bodies so it can you know essentially calm us down it can slow our heart rate you know we can see all these physiological measures of um, enjoyment and it and it hits because it has this pattern it actually triggers a kind of a reward system to become activated now i don't know how much of it is triggered in a in a neonate uh, at three months, but I, uh, there's certainly data that that they um, that that neonates that are exposed to music, um, premature babies, you know, that they they can show um, more calm like you know behaviors, um, which makes it easier for them to take food in um, and you know essentially grow as they need to. Uh, there's some really interesting data too of uh, of mothers who sing lullabies to their premature infants, um, and you see that those premature infants actually leave the NICU faster. Uh, they uh, tend to gain enough weight more quickly. Um, you know, they 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 essentially uh, seem to develop um, more quickly in in a, in a sense. And what's more is that the mothers feel better too. 
that their own stress levels measured by cortisol levels, uh, you know, go down. And they report feeling much more calm and, and better. And, you know, in some ways, lullabies are really interesting because I feel like they are just as much for the caregiver as they are for the baby. Um, and if you think traditionally of a lot of lullabies being written by, um, you know, the mother who gave birth to the child and might then be suffering from postpartum emotions, uh, a lot of lullabies are actually pretty negative. <laughs> you know, cradles falling and you know, these, these deep, dark uh, thoughts. And, and it's not, you know, you don't actually want to tell the child that the world that they have entered is, is <laughs> this difficult place to be in. Um, but it can be cathartic to the mothers is, is one of the theories, is one of the ideas behind uh, why some of these lullabies are actually pretty dark, that these mothers who are going through um, these, these somewhat negative feelings uh, can actually express them and let, let out some of these feelings by singing these lullabies um, and expressing their fears and so forth. And that, that can be healing. Uh, so anyway, I, I, so I think there are a lot of reasons why listening to Mozart or, um, you know, singing lullabies to premature babies is actually a really good thing. Do you sing to your children as well? Uh, I do. I do more so to my son who's now five, uh, than I do to my daughter who's seven months. And, and that's in part because, um, I, I, you know, now, now that I have a son too, that is trying to go to sleep in the middle of the night when my daughter wakes, I just try to get her to go to, to not make noise sooner rather than singing to her the way I did to him. Um, because I don't want her to wake up her brother. Uh, but, uh, but yes, I do sing to them every day. And, um, you know, I, it, it's, it's interesting. Like when my son was born, um, I was really performing pretty actively while pregnant. And so he heard a lot of, uh, of, of, you know, my performances in the womb. And then there was this one piece in particular that I'd sung a lot. And so in those first three months, I was singing it to him all the time. And then about the time when he started to be three months old, um, you know, the baby like leaves the meatloaf stage where, uh, you know, they start to kind of wake up and become like a human being. <laughs> they start to like react to the world around them as opposed to just being a meatloaf. And, uh, and all of a sudden he didn't like me to sing like, like, like my full out operatic stuff. And, and, uh, he would, he would cry this cry that was just like, as if someone was like, you know, tearing his fingernails out when I would do that. And I, and I realized it was probably because he thought I was in distress, uh, you know, cause I'm singing these big operatic arias with these big emotions. And he was probably like, Oh my goodness. Like my, my lifeline to this world is, you know, making these noises that sound <laughs> as if she's like in a lot of pain. Um, so there was a period of time where I actually couldn't sing in front of him. Um, and then slowly started bringing it back again. Um, I haven't tried that with my daughter yet. She's, uh, the, the few times I've sung full out to her, she's just been like a joy, like, you know, big smile and, and really fascinated. So uh, maybe she doesn't care so much about what's going on to me. You mentioned that you sang all throughout your pregnancy. What was that like, given the kind of physiological changes with your body? Did that change in terms of how you had to sing, what your air capacity was like in your lungs how did that how did that work yeah it all changes like um every trimester essentially is different uh so you know there's so many changes that happen in your body when you're pregnant um and a lot of them affect the voice so it's a little known fact but um opera singers who take birth control pills sometimes find that the birth control pills affect their voice their voices get lower in uh in pitch and a little bit thicker because of the hormonal changes <clears throat> And, uh, and so in early pregnancy, I found that um, some of those changes happened. My voice seemed to get a little bit richer. And then as I started to feel, um, you know, the, the pressure of the fetus on my diaphragm, I actually found it much easier to sing because all of a sudden, 
um, I, I had these sensations that were very clear to me, like where it was that I needed to feel the support, you know, uh, where I needed to kind of use my breath and so forth. So I, I actually found it made me a much better singer because it sort of showed me aspects about um, my sort of singing apparatus that I hadn't really been quite as aware of before. And it wasn't until like I was in the eighth or ninth month uh, that I started to feel out of breath enough where it was like affecting me in a negative way. Um, and also by then I was just kind of tired. So I didn't really want to stand, you know, for so long and, 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 you know, singing can be exhausting. So I would say like I sang all the way up until eight months of pregnancy, uh, in a way that was better than I had in the past. Um, and then those last couple months and then, and then after having the baby and this happened both times, actually, um, the period of recovery was a little bit more surprising because all of a sudden you go from having a really good sense of where your diaphragm is and how to support to like, it's just like this bowl of jello <laughs> and you're like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Like now I have no muscles and nothing to feel. And so I actually feel like, um, the postpartum period is more difficult, has, has more impact on singing than the pregnancy period. Um, and, uh, and so I'm, I'm just coming out of that now. And I feel like actually with the second pregnancy, I think my voice probably has changed. I don't know if this will be a permanent change with my first, it didn't seem to be a permanent change, but this one feels a little bit more permanent, which is that my voice, cause it has retained that kind of richness and lower timbre. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, yeah. So, so we'll see how long that lasts, but it definitely changes how you sing. I, I used to sing in, in college and then, uh, I haven't, I haven't really done a lot of singing recently. Um, but I've noticed it's because I've, it's been a long time since I've used those muscles really. Um, it's been harder than it, than it was in the past. So it's like being an athlete. You yeah, really have to kind of keep it going <laughs> yep. to, to work it out. You do. You do. Exactly. I mean, I think that that's, that's definitely true. I mean, hopefully, you know, there's some savings with relearning, uh, that you find that it will take you less than, than if you, you know, were starting from scratch completely, but, um, but yes, for sure. And, you know, as you get older, things become less flexible. Um, you know, so yeah, I think that there are those changes. Uh, but I also think that, you know, a lot of people say, well, I just couldn't pick up an instrument now that, you know, I'm over X age. And, and the truth is, is that, um, you just, you're, you, you approach practice very differently. And one of the things that I, I tell people is that, you know, this whole idea of 10,000 hours, um, really is just the tip of the iceberg because the truth is, is that not every hour of practice is created equal. And they look at me and they think, well, what, what do you mean? I mean, I'm, I'm in the practice room. I'm like, you know, I'm trying, trying really hard. You know, I, I, I want to learn this piece and I, you know, I'm trying these different strategies. And, and the truth is, is that, you know, deliberate practice is something that very has some very specific features and people don't really recognize all of them all the time in their own practice. So one of the features, for example, is that you have a goal set for that um, practice that you will somehow be able to um, objectively measure, you know, how close you're getting to that goal, whether the strategies that you're using are getting you closer or further away. Um, and so feedback and the opportunity to correct for errors is a really big part of deliberate practice. But what makes deliberate practice deliberate versus purposeful, as Anders Ericsson, uh, you know, coins the term, is the fact that in deliberate practice, you actually have the knowledge of an expert in your area uh, who knows that these particular strategies do work. And that's not true of every field, right? There are some, you know, new um, uh, kind of sports, for example, where there aren't any experts. They don't really know what is the best way to practice. So in those cases, you can't really have the sort of canonical deliberate practice. Um, so, but if, but it, let's say you are, you know, you want to learn to play the guitar and you're older, you know, 
again, I think that you can be much more strategic cognitively uh, and, and figure out like how to set schedule your practice sessions. And I, I tell my students now, I, I, I teach um, a course called Training the Musical Brain at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, where, you know, I, I help these students, you know, develop better practice strategies. And, and, and one of the things I tell them is like, you know, part of your job as a student is to, at the beginning of the week, really like map out when you're going to practice what and how. And how are you going to evaluate yourself? And, you know, the more you can, more variability you can put in there, the more strategy you can use in terms of like how you're interleaving different practice uh, pieces and and, and sections and and the way that you're going over it, you know, how you're going to be, you know, evaluating yourself, all of that matters. And, uh, and so like, if you take that kind of mindful approach to your practice as an adult, you need a lot less practice time than you do as a child, where as a child, like, you know, you really got to, it's almost a game of like just keeping the child interested, <laughs> right? Whereas presumably as an adult, you know, you motivate yourself. So, um, so, you know, we, and we know that like the, the sort of the brain basis of practice is different for a child versus an adult because a child's brain has, you know, is, is more plastic, it's more malleable, it's still developing. Um, whereas an adult's brain, you know, you, you, I sort of call it the use it or lose it principle. You know, if you're going to be, um, you know, rewiring your brain to do a new task, you know, that probably means that, you know, there'll be something else that, that kind of go away. Um, and, and, and mainly because you're just not going to be spending time on that other thing. So, you know, for example, if you're going to, you know, learn to speak Italian, um, you know, it could interfere with your ability to speak German because for the time in which you're immersing yourself in Italian and rewiring your brain to think in Italian, you're not focusing on German. Um, so you've you know, got that lost time. But, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, then then so then as an as an adult, you kind of have to have motivation and effort and 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 that way you can turn on um, neuroplasticity within, you know, biological limits. Um, but, you know, you kind of you, you, we have the ability to, to still sort of leave the mark on the brain. Um, you know, it just has to be structured a little bit differently. Now I'm a big fan of musical theater. And I think one of the reasons that it resonates with me so much is because the layering of storytelling kind of on top of the music gives the music more emotional impact than just the music by itself. Is that one of the reasons why opera resonates with you? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, I feel like there are some emotions that are so difficult to express that like only kind of the the opera, the great operatic arias uh, are just ways of like, oh, yeah, that's exactly how I feel when, you know, my husband is philandering with the maid. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, you know, it's like, I don't know, I'm being being facetious, but there, you know, but there are. uh, Yeah, I think that that's what for me, what what is what is amazing about it. There's this one aria, for example, by Puccini called Senza Mama or without with out mother and it's it's this uh, nun who um, you know was sent to the convent because she was pregnant and that was not okay and they took her baby away and raised it you know elsewhere and then you know someone comes basically to tell her that the baby died and uh, and she sings this aria about the death of this child and how this child never knew her mother's kiss you know that it was without you know s- somehow this child died without you know the love of her mother and and it, the way that the mus- that that these the emotions are portrayed in this piece are just it's so 
gut-wrenchingly beautiful and and true and you just feel like that's you know it's this this kind of just guttural emotion of like what it must be like for this woman to you know feel this way um you know and then you know she kills herself because it's opera but um you know it, you can kind of you know it's it's all you know all of a sudden like you, you know it's this it's this exploration of, like as i'm telling you that story you think oh well that's very sad but like when you listen to you know the words and the music um as they're expressed by this character you know, the kind of just depth of the, the feelings that she's experiencing just become very real. Um, so, th- so that's what's exciting to me about opera is this kind of like exploration of, of sort of the, the, the deepest, most uh, powerful human emotions that we have. And, and of course, how they, how they relate to the stories that are being told, which are often the big, grand, uh, you know, awesome stories of, of great literature. One experience I had was uh, a few days after the 2016 election, um, I was in London, and I went to go see a production of the musical Ragtime at Charing Cross mm. Theatre, which is a very small venue under Charing Cross uh, Railway Station. So it's this tiny little venue. And it was a very intimate production, which uh, you know, a show like Ragtime is very much often done on a grand scale. But this was a lot more scaled back. Um, and uh, you know, it was almost Brechtian because... Um, you know, the actors weren't just singing, but they were also playing all the instruments as well. And so what was interesting about it, and what I found so moving, was that you weren't just hearing the music and seeing the singers, but you were seeing the the movement of the playing of the instruments at the same time. So the emotion of the characters, you know, express, expressed not just through the sound, but also kind of the visual movement of the playing. Um, so almost like a, mm-hmm. a, like we talked about before, almost athletic. You're seeing all the parts of the body move in creating this music that you're, you're listening to. Um, and so seeing a show like that, especially with themes of racism and class in America and days after this big event in the United States, I was just <laughs> sobbing and sobbing. Um, you know, like it's moments like that. I think for me that really just, you, know, you have these moments where, where music can really just kind of pull at those, emotional strings inside of you yeah and you know a lot of people think of the auditory and visual systems as being separate but they are very much intertwined um you know as you've just described so you know there's this great illusion called the mcgurk effect uh you can you can find it um online where there's basically a face uh and it or a split screen actually and it's you see like two faces and and uh you know you have one um auditory sort of track being played at the whole time and if you look at the face on the left you interpret that auditory signal as the person saying bar and if you look at the one on the right you interpret it as them saying far and you know you can essentially toggle between the two faces and change how you perceive that same sound you know the sound wave doesn't change it's how your brain perceives it that changes Uh, and it's a great illustration of how we are very much influenced in terms of what we see um, and, 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 and how it relates to what we actually hear. Uh, there's, there's, there's some other, you know, lovely work, um, showing that even in classical music competitions, um, people that just watched videos with no audio of the competitors were better at uh, picking who eventually won the competition than people who had audio and video or people who had audio alone, um, suggesting that there's something about the physicality of their performance that the judges were responding to um, that, you know, really influenced how they judged their performance. Wow, that's fascinating. 
Yeah, and classical music. Like you'd think, you know, this is this is the this is the domain where people have blinded auditions, right? Where like, you know, if you're auditioning for a symphony, you sit behind a curtain and so like they don't even see you visually. Um and that's that's great in terms of reducing bias. Uh, you know, recently there was a young student from the San Francisco Conservatory who won a seat in, in an orchestra with these blind auditions and she was like twenty one, like <laughs> super young. Um and you know, it was it was a really amazing feat, uh, which she probably never would have won this audition had it not been blind. Um, but at the same time, it takes away from the fact that, in fact, the audience is going to be paying in part to see uh, these individuals. And so, you know, if, if we lived in a world where uh, gender and racial bias was not an issue, it would actually make sense for those auditions to be um, open so that you could see how the person is playing, because that does influence what the audience will hear. Before we wrap up, I just wanted to touch on uh, one aspect of your book, um, which is how can music make society better? Yeah. So, you know, the the kind of main thesis in the book is about how music can help us uh, understand each other better. Uh, and it relates to empathy. So when you're listening to somebody, um, you know, play music, you know, you, your brain essentially mirrors what it is that their brains are doing. We see this, um, you know, we, we kind of call it the mirror neuron system, although it's different from mirror neurons themselves. Um, it's this whole kind of imitative system, like one way in which we are able to understand the intentions and the emotions of another person is by mirroring uh, what we think they are doing in our own brains. And that is a way of kind of understanding that person's experience. And I think that you know, one of the reasons why we have such polarity in the U.S., for example, is because it's very difficult to understand another person's experience when their political views are so different from yours. And I think music actually is a great way of connecting people. Um, when people sing in a choir, their breath and, and, and rates and heart rates synchronize. Um, when we bounce babies in sync with the music, the babies actually feel more connected to us. I mean, music is a powerful social glue. And I think that we can use music to help us, you know, feel more human <laughs> towards each other and less like, you know, less dehumanizing um, the other group as we often do. You know, we kind of when we talk about a group of people that we don't agree with, we kind of dehumanize them. And I think music is a great way of humanizing um uh, other people and I think that that's why you know it it can be very powerful in terms of helping heal a lot of the ills that we have uh, in society well hopefully we can make a path towards doing more of that more choirs all around <laughs> yes more music more choirs <laughs> thank you so much for joining me and thank you for writing this really interesting book about how music can improve not just our lives on a personal level but on a societal level as well thank you Chris it's been a pleasure to be on your podcast Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please visit patreon.com slash theatheistbook. For more information about the book and film versions of A Better Life, visit theatheistbook.com.